This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. We hear a lot in the media about the pressure that kids are under today and the stress they have in their lives. They're too busy. They have huge amounts of homework. Their school bags are actually causing back problems. Getting into the right college has become so important that their entire youths are structured around it. And so on. Check the web for teenage stress and you'll see what I mean. But in spite of our focus on this kind of teenage stress, we also know that for a lot of kids, this kind of stress would be a relief. The stress that they deal with comes from family violence or drugs or mental illness. And many of these kids, especially as they grow into adolescence, end up committing crimes and being brought into the juvenile justice system. It's pretty intuitive that there is some connection between the trauma that they're experiencing and the crimes they commit. But for the social workers and others who work with adolescent offenders, exactly how that works is a major question. If they can map the road that leads from trauma to delinquency, they may be able to head things off before they start to go really bad. My guest on the show today is Tina Mashey. For several years, Mashey was a social worker in both juvenile and adult prisons. And in that time, she developed a keen interest in the ways that the juvenile justice system deals with the problems that kids come into the system with. Mashi today is an assistant professor in Fordham's Graduate School of Social Service, and she's been working on discovering the links between trauma and delinquency. Later on the show, we'll hear about the stress that being homeless causes kids. But first, Tina Mashi joins me in the studio. Tina Mashi, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, in preparing for this interview, I did a quick search on NewYorkTimes.com for the phrase juvenile delinquency, and I came up with some pretty sort of disturbing stuff. Young teenagers serving time with adult prisoners, dangerous disciplinary practices, and deaths. Before we talk about delinquency per se, now paint me a picture of what happens to you if, as a juvenile, you commit a crime. Well, if you're a juvenile and you commit a crime, it depends on what happens to you, whether or not it comes to the attention of the law. So at that point, the police has discretion about whether or not they're going to uh, arrest the youth or let them go, uh, just get, warn and release them. If the, the police do arrest them, they could be released to go to uh, court later, or they might be held in detention until they go to court. If they get convicted at court... They could get probation or they could get placed in residential treatment. And the other most strictest of the options would be to be placed in secure care or placement, which would be a prison. A lot of these kids and teenagers come into the justice system already having had a lot of problems in their lives. How does the system then deal with that once they're locked up? That's a that's a good question. At the time when I was in working within the juvenile justice system, not much. And and to, that's true to some degree, although some juvenile justice centers, systems like, uh, in Chicago, I think might be one of the areas where they're beginning to make uh, give trauma assessments as, as youth enter the system. A lot of the traumatizing experiences happened before they got to prison, uh, such as uh, living in uh, violent homes, living in violent communities, witnessing a, a parent being uh, killed, friends being killed. Many of them may have lost three to four friends by the time they have entered into a prison system. Many of them have histories of physical and sexual abuse chronic o over not, not just a one-time occurrence, but chronically over the course of uh, many years. These are common everyday occurrences that was not my experience of, of childhood, seeing that amount of violence and that amount of uh, loss 
in such a young age. These things have happened, yet there's really nothing actively being done about it. It's only now where it's been uh, 10 years later that they're beginning to make inroads in, in, into addressing trauma as a separate issue. When you talk about trauma, what, what are you talking about? What does trauma mean? I use a broad definition of trauma to include trauma and stressful life events. So a victim of trauma, the more severe types is such as being a victim of violence, and that could be physical abuse as a child. Being a victim of physical assault, such as uh, fighting, where peer-on-peer violence would be uh, very common among teens. So it may not necessarily be family violence where the physical assault occurs, but also a peer-on-peer violence. Uh, a sexual assault, being a victim of self- sexual assault. Also, uh, in, uh, youth could uh, witness these kinds of experiences. So, you could, so it's being a victim or witness to physical or sexual assault. Then there's a less severe s- stressful life events, which have just as much impact depending on the developmental period, especially for children and adolescents, these kinds of events are big. Parents divorcing. If parents are substance users, the kinds of disruption and disarray that might cause. Um, family member loss, that could be some of them placed in the juvenile justice system. If you have a one of your parents that you don't see very often because they're placed in prison for who knows how amount of time, that's uh, the absence of a family member. Parents dying. And end by sometimes violent means. Other stressful life events, uh, for some kids, moving to a new home could be a stressful life event. Who are the populations that you're looking at here demographically? The juvenile justice system and the criminal justice system are notoriously known for having the disproportionate confinement of uh, minorities. So the majority in the juvenile justice system are of African-American descent or disproportionate amount compared to the general population statistics. There's also uh, a large population within the juvenile justice system that are just grasping with mental health problems. Uh, Many of those youth will more than likely have or have high probability of having a, a history of trauma because one of the consequences of trauma is having psychological or mental health consequences due to an, uh, having an unresolved trauma. Most of the population of the juvenile justice system is also males. However, the literature suggests that females have the highest documented, at least sexual abuse, among the, the juvenile justice populations compared to males. However, there's a whole debate. Women just tell about it more than men. The boys within the juvenile justice system, demographically, whereas girls are the overwhelmingly the victims of sexual abuse, boys are more than likely the victims of all other kinds of uh, abuse, physical abuse by acquaintance or family member being at the top of that list. So those groups demographically are impacted. And also they're disproportionately poor. Oh, yeah. So socioeconomic status, sure. Yeah. And and have had a public defender rather than a hired lawyer. And that might have been one reason why they end up in secure care. One of the things that you say that all these kinds of trauma do is in some cases sort of wear away at something that is called resiliency, basically the ability to get over things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a the sense of um, triumph over adversity. And that's where the real key comes in. Because not every kid who is traumatized becomes delinquent. So what are the factors 
that influence why some kids do and some kids don't. The literature, what I look at as well as other researchers, is how internal resources such as uh, coping, self-esteem, cognitions, positive versus negative cognitions, uh, impact whether kids become delinquent or not. But there's also external factors such as was there a sense of social support there um, for someone there. There's a difference between someone that was able to disclose their trauma and those that don't get to disclose that trauma. And does that, do they have a sense of support at the time? And that might be critical in how that individual copes with that trauma. And so if if you think of delinquency as an adverse uh, or maladaptive coping response to a trauma, then people can, at the same time, youth can also have a an adaptive response and go on to do, use the experience to become stronger and uh, adaptive. So just because something bad happens to you doesn't mean you're going to start committing crimes. No, not at all. And you know what? In terms of resiliency, a few factors that really stick out for me, characteristics of youth, is that those that show a sense of creativity, sense of humor, are able to overcome adversity much easier. And so you'll see that a lot of kids that are able to healthily overcome that experience are engaged in the arts one way or another, whether they they write, whether they do theater, music, uh, it's just some kind of self-expression that helped process their experience. We've been talking about trauma up until now in sort of a, a general way, but how do people tend to react to certain kinds of traumas? Like, for example, if I am a witness to violence, how am I likely to be traumatized in a different way than if I was the victim of violence? I would say that it varies on the person and it varies on what you see. I think the important thing is what is the subjective impression of the person? Because we can look at an event and, and you and I could say, well, that seems worse than the other. You know, being a victim seems worse than witnessing something. However, when I worked with kids in the criminal justice system, time and time again, when I heard uh, different uh, parts of their, their narratives, their experience of witnessing one parent beating another seemed to have a more significant impact on them, where they really wished it could have been them. They would have rather have been uh, the victim rather than witnessing someone they love getting getting hurt. And people who are victims of different kinds of trauma and abuse tend to sort of react in different ways depending on what happens to them. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. If you want to look at it where you can have both a emotional or psychological consequence or a behavioral consequence. And uh, often in the literature, especially with children, we're looking at the difference between internalizing versus externalizing behavior based on an instrument called the, the child behavior checklist. And are there differences between the kinds of problems that boys and girls tend to develop? Yeah. If you just had to look at it generally, girls are more likely to internalize and boys are more likely to externalize. And we, uh, my colleagues and I conducted a study in which we looked at a sample of children and we found that for boys, the link between being a victim of child maltreatment, so this is they were they were substantiated victims of child maltreatment, and externalizing behavior was direct across time, across four different time points, which consisted of four years. Um, where girls, it was mediated by internalizing. So if there was a link between girls who in, 
internalized feelings and then then externalized. What does it mean to internalize something? As I said, depression and anxiety, so somatic physical symptoms such as um, having trouble sleeping are just some of the different characteristics of uh, internalizing behaviors. And externalizing? More physical, fighting, being angry and arguing, and just engaging in, in delinquent kinds of acts. You know, I just realized you've been talking about delinquency, and we haven't actually described what kind of acts you're referring to here. Okay. Um, tell me about what you're talking about when you talk about delinquency. There are different categories, right? Sure. Yeah, there's a severe, serious crime, such as um, violent offenses, which could be anything from uh, the most serious being murder. There's robbery, aggravated assault, aggravated sexual assault. There's property offenses, which is... Um, the next uh, category. So we've got violent offenses, which are index one, index two offenses or property offenses, burglary, larceny, and arson is, I think, classified in that category as well. And then there's non-index offenses, which could be anything from less serious crimes uh, and misdemeanors, such as being a runaway. Also, when you're a youth, uh, drinking is a status offense, illegal uh, drinking. Prostitution, and so those are just some of the common crimes, theft, stealing something. What is a status offense? A status offense is distinguished specifically for youth. It's if you were an adult, it wouldn't be a crime. If you were, you're allowed to drink after the age of 21. Oh, because of your underage status. Right. I see. So there's these different types of offenses. Some are considered to be much worse than others. How does the likelihood to commit these offenses break down in terms of gender and the kinds of trauma kids have experienced? Yeah, that's a good question because there is a pattern of offending that differs between uh, males and females. Girls are more than likely to be arrested for prostitution and those kinds of sex crimes where boys overwhelmingly are convicted for the violent crimes. So that that's like the major distinction between the two. Uh, boys are more than likely to get arrested in general. I think the most recent statistics have them up as high as 80% or 20% as girls. And what about the breakdown of um, what happens to you and then what kinds of offenses you're likely to commit? Well, I would say that there's a lot of literature that if you're a victim of a violent uh violence, that you're more than likely to commit violence. So there's that cycle of violence hypothesis. You grow up in a violent home, you become violent. In a victim of sexual abuse, there's a high probability that they may get involved in prostitution. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is social worker and researcher Tina Mashey. She's an assistant professor at Fordham's Graduate School of Social Service. And we're talking about the links between trauma and juvenile delinquency. In a few minutes, a look at what being homeless means if you're a school kid. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Tina Mashey. A whole other side to this question is mental illness. A disproportionate number of teenagers who commit offenses have mental disorders like anxiety, depression, oppositional disorder, ADHD, substance abuse. How are they treated by the system? I would say things are getting better. First of all, they weren't assessing them coming in necessarily. So they're getting better at assessing the different kinds of mental health problems. And once they know that it's a problem, then it can provide them with the kinds of services that they need. 
I was struck when I was reading your materials by the idea that somebody who had uh, a mental illness might be seen as being a more threatening offender or an offender because the police or whoever was called in to deal with them didn't see that it was that kind of a problem and also felt threatened by the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that is, is interesting. There's a whole stigma of mental illness where um, you know people are misunderstand, afraid of individuals, including youth with mental illness, or they misread the signs. Uh, where if a, a youth with oppositional defiant disorder, where they might be acting out, in certain ways or talking back where they where they have a disorder is is read as uh, being delinquent. There are some circumstances where the family members refer, often in a time of crisis because the family cannot handle the youth's behavior in the home, which could be acting out, uh, violent, um, argumentative. And there are probably circumstances in the past where People did try to get help, mental health treatment for their youth, and they were unable to get treatment. So that's where the police come in. And I think what happens is in negative circumstances, uh, in the study that I'm just uh, conducting now, I've just been reading through case records, where those youth that went untreated when they needed the help, 17 at the time, they're spending their life in, in prison because what they ended up doing was murdering one of their family members. So with that falling through the gap, not getting those mental health services, it could, in some circumstances, lead to a, a violent outcome. Now, we've already talked about the ways that boys and girls are different in terms of uh, the kinds of abuse they experience and the kinds of ways they might respond to that abuse. But there's also a difference in terms of what happens when boys and girls go and seek help in the first place. They're sort of directed differently, aren't they? Yeah, it- Help-seeking behavior can differ between boys and girls. Uh, My colleagues and I, we just finished a study uh, that just got published where we looked at how boys versus girls were referred into the system, who referred them, for what they were referred for. And and what were what were the contributing factors that led up to that referral? And um, the literature in general says that family members are more than likely to refer girls into the system. Um, and we, we found that, um, that they either self-referred or that family members referred them. Compared with boys, they were more than likely to be uh, referred into the system by law enforcement or uh, juvenile justice s- sources. So who's getting them to get the help uh, differs. What they get... Referred for, girls are more than likely being referred for um, uh, internalizing kinds of problems like depression, anxiety, and other uh, aspects like family planning. That's where the uh, history of sexual abuse compared with boys where it's for problematic behavior, uh, special education needs. And so those are like the general differences. It's almost as if it's uh, the stereotypes we think about genders. Uh, We're actually finding evidence where Agencies, including law enforcement, mental health, uh, social services, and any agency in a community could refer youth. They were doing it along gendered lines. Is that because of the boys and girls, or is it because of the agencies? The question I ask is, is it because of biology, or is it because of a social construction or bias? Bias aren't a part of the agencies seeing the things they normally identify with problems that should be boys or girls, or is it really something in or or the youth themselves uh, enacting gender roles 
enacting their problems in gender acceptable ways, or is it something biological? So these are things, that's why we do research to continue to find out why that might be. So just to really simplify that, a a boy might act out feeling bad by being aggressive because that's acceptable and it might be interpreted by a service provider as being more aggressive than it is because they might perceive boy offenders as being more threatening and so on and so forth. Yeah, I agree with that. And or they might miss that here is this uh, young man who's uh, depressed. So they might refer for the one thing but not pick up all the other needs that he might have. Now, you're doing academic research, but this is not an academic issue. This is a real issue that is a big deal right now. The information that you're getting, how can it be used? Sure. Uh, One thing I love about the field of social work is we're a very applied profession. We don't just find things out for the sake of finding them out. We want to do something about it. So my hope and my dream is, and the reason why I do this, is that I would like to see the development of trauma-specific services uh, within all the different stages of the juvenile justice system as a uh, secondary prevention or intervention. I would also like to see prevention programs developed, just even the recognition of all the different types of traumas, also their cumulative impact. If added up, if you have a kid whose parents got divorced, they lost their home, they got um, suspended from school and a whole host of things that just really overloaded them stress-wise, that those kinds of services are available in school, not to just call in professionals because you found out they're a victim of child abuse, which should be reported. But that's the only thing that's mandated to report. So other things like experience of parental divorce and those things might go unnoticed. So uh, sensitizing schools to those types of issues and providing, they sometimes refer to it as emotional literacy training because sometimes it's just a matter of learning how to recognize your feelings and then express them in pro-social ways rather than anti-social ways that might begin to interrupt the cycle between being a victim of stress and trauma uh, to becoming an offender. I'll end this on a more positive note. We've been talking a lot about the sort of punishment side of all this, but you are also involved in a program that is, I guess, more uh, constructively oriented. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the Arts Empowerment Project. As I mentioned earlier, a big piece of resilience that I think is is critical is the creative, the sense of creative self and um, artistic expression. And I specifically am working with uh, kids because... uh, and adults as well, uh, using the use of drumming as a source of empowerment. They use a lot, drumming a lot with women who are victims of spousal abuse, where it's, it's an empowerment-building technique, and it, and it helps build a sense of a community. So it's like these nonverbal techniques, whether it be visual art, whether it be music, whether it be theater, help people transcend uh, these types of traumatic, traumatic experiences and uh, process them. There's a whole biological piece to this, um, that there's different parts of the brain where trauma is stored and they're in nonverbal areas and and something like the arts can get at that in a way that you cannot do in, in a regular talk therapy kind of session. Tina Mashi is an assistant professor at Fordham's Graduate School of Social Service. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, it's showtime at the Apollo. That's ahead at 730.
But first, for homeless kids, the regular stresses of childhood and poverty are compounded by a living situation that is profoundly stressful in itself. And about 40 percent of the estimated 3.5 million homeless people living in the U.S. are children. Producers Sarah Elzis and Sarah Kramer spent some time with a group of New York's homeless kids and learned what life in school is really like for them. Do you know my name? No, it's not. <laughs> Herbert R. Bennett Jr. Don't ever call me Herbert. J.R. Bennett is sitting at the end of a table in a conference room at the Coalition for the Homeless in downtown Manhattan. He and the other students in the room are part of the coalition's youth advocacy group. They meet weekly to work on raising awareness about homelessness. They feel comfortable here talking about being homeless, something they can't do with just anyone. Today's topic is going to be education while being in the shelter system. Today, J.R., the founder of the group, is leading a conversation about school. He's wearing a black button-down shirt and has his questions written out on a yellow pad in front of him. First day of high school, my mom went to my guidance counselor, so that was fun. (laughs) Deandra K. Atkinson is 16. And I had a lecture about how even though I'm homeless, I can still do great and I can get everything done, and I didn't. So they would say that, oh, you could have done it if you really wanted to. And I'm like, how? Homeless students across the country have to deal with more than the usual difficulty of growing up in poverty. Along with the stress and instability of moves from shelter to shelter, they often have to negotiate long commutes. Frequent moves also make it difficult to keep school records straight. And even basic things like supplies and uniforms are hard to come by. And then there are the relationships with teachers and the other students. How exactly were y'all treated by, like, people that knew that you were homeless? They talk about it constantly. That's 14-year-old Von Bathia. They make fun of us, saying that we can't afford anything, we can't afford housing, can't afford clothes and stuff. They used to get in my face. They'd be telling me, oh, you ugly, you dirty, you this and that. Isis is 13. She's Von's sister. They just moved out of the shelter system into an apartment in the Bronx. They were homeless for more than two years. When I was homeless, my attitude was really on the tip of aggravated. Homeless students are caught in a bind. Ideally, a teacher would know their situation and would provide extra time for them to complete projects if they miss school. But at the same time, the kids don't really want anyone to know. Let's face it, kids are cruel to other kids. Agnes Stevens is a retired teacher in Los Angeles. She founded School on Wheels 11 years ago, a nonprofit that provides educational assistance to homeless students through tutoring and other services. I've seen it work greatly when a teacher is aware of children coming from a shelter, but I've seen it far too often where nobody knows and there is that mistrust on all sides. Some of the teachers want to, like, you know, because of the fact that you're homeless, it's like, we understand your situation, and it's like, well, I'm no different than the other kids in the class. I guess I feel like it's kind of like talking down to me as if, you know, it's okay, you're homeless, and it shouldn't be that way. It's like, we are going through something different, but other kids in the class, like, feed off of that. Like, why is he getting an extension, you know? Is it because he's homeless? I had to go to different schools to finally finish the fifth grade. That's Vaughn again. I tried to finish fifth grade in one school year. We was forced to move to another shelter. Then I tried again, and I was almost there. It was almost June, then we had to move again. According to the McKinney-Vento Act, a federal law protecting the rights of homeless students, these kids are allowed to stay in their school of origin, where they lived before becoming homeless. School districts are obligated to help them do that, but not everyone is informed of this right. If they do decide to stay, their schools can be far away from their shelter, and they have trouble making it to school on time, or making it at all. 
and they're exhausted with negotiating the system. A lot of times, like, I know I slept during school. That was my time to sleep. You over here, like, slouching in the table and everything, they'd be like, what's wrong with you, Isis? And then you say, oh, I didn't sleep last night. I think for a teacher, it's kind of frustrating because they maybe don't come in with their work or they're out a lot of times and that kind of thing. Agnes says that in Los Angeles, public schools are already overburdened, as are most urban school systems in the U.S. Add in homeless students, there are 800 in downtown Skid Row alone. It's a lot to deal with for overworked teachers. The classroom teacher really, when our tutors get a hold of them, they really want to help. I think it's just the conflict and the frustration of people not knowing where people are coming from. Since I've gotten into high school, I've really began to like school a lot because I felt comfortable there. Like, I dread going to my shelter. JR lives with his father and was first homeless when he was four. In 2002, he became homeless again at the end of his first year of high school. I feel like my only escape out of the shelter system right now is college. Most of the colleges I applied to was out of New York State. I don't want to be in New York City anymore. I don't know, just too many bad memories. I just want to leave it. In New York, this is Sarah Elzis. This piece was produced with Sarah Kramer. You can learn more about services for the homeless in New York City at nyc.gov DHS. You can also sign up there to volunteer at the annual Hope Count of the City's Homeless. That's through the night of Monday, January 26th. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. You can also hear it in our audio archive, which is also on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a happy weekend.